Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. So a couple of things uh, that I think it's just important for us to remember why we're doing this, right? It's for us to be followers of Jesus, if that's what we call ourselves. The important thing is not just like coming here or logging in or whatever, right? The important thing is that we engage, that we take a step. And so here's my encouragement to you. Looking out, looking at these incredible folks, knowing so many of your stories, knowing that you've heard me give countless sermons, right? You've heard me talk plenty. Let me say something to you guys. Just because Jesus has done incredible work in your life doesn't mean that Jesus is done doing work in your life. And I say the same thing to those of you watching online. That's the same thing for you. Just because there's, there's been incredible work, that doesn't mean we're done. So I'm encouraging you to, to, to engage however that looks for you. Maybe you want to take notes. Maybe you want to get the, the, the Moving Church app and follow along in the message. Uh, maybe you want to grab at the back, there's the kid notes the, for the kid sermon. And, and you, want to, you want to do that. You want to doodle and do different things just to help you focus. But I would encourage you to do this. I would encourage you to engage along with us. Because we're in this series called the, the Sermon on the Mount, talking about the countercultural ways of Jesus. Now, the thing about this, this whole message and this whole message that Jesus gives is that I think one of the big things that Jesus is doing is trying to address the central question. How do we live? How are we supposed to live? What are we supposed to do? And I think behind all of the other big questions, that question lays there. You know, let's say you're dating or you're married or, and your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend comes to you and says, we need to talk. Can we talk? That's not a question that is really, you know, bringing maybe some good news. That's a question There's going to be a lot more there. That's a question trying to figure out where are we? How are we doing? Where are we going? How am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do in this moment? I think about the times in which you would have a, a, someone would say to you this question that would start with, hypothetically, let's say then something horrible happens. That's someone trying to figure out how are we supposed to live? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond to this? Are you going to be upset with me? Or are you going to be angry? Are you going to forgive me? Or, or maybe when your young kid comes and asks or just tells you how they flushed something down the toilet that was not supposed to go down the toilet. They're trying to figure out, is that okay? Or is that... Maybe they're just trying to brag about that and talk about how awesome they are for doing that. These questions ask, what kind of relationship am I going to be in? Are you, are you going to be mad? Are you going to forgive me? What are the lines? What are the rules that I should or shouldn't cross? The Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes. and It says that the kingdom of God is filled with people who are peacemakers, who are meek, who are forgiving, who are loving. People who, who seek out and search and yearn for truth, yearn for justice, yearn for righteousness. And in those Beatitudes, we have this, this incredible picture of like, this is what Jesus values. This is what Jesus is looking for in his kingdom. And then he starts talking about salt and light. He starts, starts talking about salt and light and these metaphors and, and all of the ways in which that we are supposed to live, that our lives should be salt, something that preserves, and light, something that brightens. And the Sermon on the Mount from here on is kind of addressing what does it mean to be salt and and light. How am I supposed to live? And the first thing that Jesus does in verse 17 is address the preconceived notions. 
he starts to come at them. This is how you think you're supposed to live. Let me mess with you a little bit. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the law and the prophets, he's talking about the, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that's full of all these laws, these rules, these prohibitions, these regulations, these things that, that the, the prophets, that God speaks through people like Moses and, and the whole rabbinical system, it give us, gives us all these laws. Now here's the bottom line. We can look at those laws and we can see how that might be repressive or restrictive, but deep down I think we all kind of want to know where we stand. We all want to know what's acceptable. We all want to know what is right and what is wrong. And so no matter what that rule is, this is, this is giving us some boundaries. These are rules that we crave. They provide some comfort. It kind of gives us some assurance. It's like growing up. When you're a little kid, your parents are often these like mythical figures, right? They, they know all this stuff. You say things like, my dad can beat up your dad, and you have this idea that your mom is perfect, your dad is perfect, they're so wise. And then all of a sudden, your parents know nothing, right? All of a sudden, they have no wisdom, you don't want to listen to them, they say up, you say down, they say left, you say right, right? You're a teenager all of a sudden. And then there's this point, hopefully, that we can all arrive at, probably as an adult, where we look back and we see more of the fullness of our parents' lives. We get to know them as adults. We get to see the fullness of them, and we see all the flaws and all that, and we more appreciate who they are in a deeper way, in a fuller way than when we were as children. Well, the law is kind of like that thing that we have when we're, we're young, we're toddlers, we're preteens even. The law is perfect and we just follow that and then we, as we get older we realize that the law doesn't quite work. All these rules don't quite work and we need something more. It seems that those would be frustrated with the Old Testament law. They want Jesus to, to kind of throw out these laws and start from scratch, right? There's this group of people that become so frustrated by it, but then Jesus comes not to throw it out, but to fulfill them. So as Jesus is telling this crowd, the, the black and white crowd, the right and wrong crowd, the very clear here of the lines crowd, that the law as it stands isn't quite enough, or at least how we've lived it out lacks something. It needs to be fulfilled. Jesus is telling this group that, that want nothing to do the law, that there is actually value. And he's telling that group that has some perspective that there's even more to appreciate than they first thought. See, I think seeing the flaws of it, we realize both our need for the law and our need for something more. We can look at these laws, we can look at God's uh, regulations, God's prohibitions, we can look at the Ten Commandments, and we see value in it, we see that, and we say we need that, but we also need something more. And so this brings us back to that fundamental question. What is Jesus trying to accomplish here? How is he going to answer this question? How are we supposed to live? And it becomes clear, and if you're taking notes, this is kind of one of those first fill-ins, it seems clear to me that Jesus does care about how we treat one another. Now that's not a deep statement. That doesn't bring this incredible truth, right? Like, like we all probably would say that, right? But have we asked the question as to why? 
Why is it that Jesus cares so much about how we treat each other? Because I think as a child and growing up in church, the gospel was explained to me a certain way. The gospel meaning the work of Jesus. It was explained as such that, that I'm a terrible person, and okay, I agree with that. I have screwed up. I have made mistakes. I agree with that. And that for me to be made right with God, for me to go to heaven, for me to, to be forgiven, I have to say yes to Jesus. I have to put my trust, I have to accept, I have to believe in Jesus. And I would say now, that is 100% true. But I would also say this, that's not all Jesus was doing. Yes, Jesus was at work trying to, to save us, trying to reconcile us, to bring us back to him, to, 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 to uh, uh, eliminate that divide and that static and that relationship, to make things right between us and God. But also, Jesus is concerned about everything. See, Jesus is not just trying to get us off of a sinking ship. He's trying to fix the sinking ship He's restoring the sinking ship. He is making things right for everything, for all of creation, for all of humanity, for all people. The gospel is bigger than we can understand. So as a child, we, we have these conceptions that are true, but we, as we grow, we need to understand there's something more going on here. It's not just about me. And so Jesus is concerned about how we treat other people. Jesus is concerned about this. And we know from talking earlier about the Sermon on the Mount that his crowd, his crowd is full of a multitude of people, many of whom think they are better than others in the group. Many of them say that because I follow the law, because I do right, because I whatever, my last name, my family line, whatever, I am better than these people. Jesus is talking to a bunch of people who don't see themselves as scum, don't see themselves as murderers or adulterers. He has this issue as a communicator. Jesus has to say, how do I begin to get them all involved in this conversation and not just think, man, Jesus is really railing on so-and-so. Jesus is really calling out so-and-so. How do I get them to see that this is about me as well? How do I get these people to realize that they need saving just as much as the most notorious. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus is going to do this kind of this pattern where he'll call back to a teaching of the law. He says this, he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister without cause will be subject to judgment. He goes on, he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is saying something that was kind of a no-brainer, right? Like, just as we say Jesus cares about how we treat other people, he says that you shouldn't murder. Oh, of course you shouldn't murder. You should revere life. You should respect life at all stages, right? This is something you should cherish and protect. And then Jesus says that not only should you not do that, but he says you should not anger. You should not have hate. See, see, the power is here is that hate and that anger is the ability to corrupt things. 
Jesus isn't just concerned with chasing the symptoms. Jesus is going after the disease. And he even says that reconciliation, asking for forgiveness, receiving forgiveness, is more important than religious acts. In our parlance, if you walked into church this morning and realized there was a problem, there was a division that you needed to apologize to somebody, you should turn around and go do that before you come in here. And Jesus is very clear. He's saying that the more important thing is not giving gifts at the altar. It's making a step. It's making an act of, of, of asking for forgiveness. Because I think what he is saying is that this anger can build and grow. Think about it this way. Think about the kind of the cycles that we go through with anger. First, we're, we're annoyed. And then we get our temper up, we get really frustrated, and then we get angry, and then we get maybe a little cynical and say, it doesn't matter, there's no way I'm going to be able to fix anything, and then there's that despair that builds in, and then you feel like you don't have any other option except to act with violence. Jesus is saying, you can go after, you can talk about the violence as, you well, as well and good and as you should, but don't miss where it starts. He'll go on here and he'll talk about lust and adultery. He'll say, of course you shouldn't cheat on your spouse, spouse but you also shouldn't look at someone lustfully. And use these exaggerating hyperbolic terms of saying essentially gouge out your eyes, cut off your hand if this is causing you to do things. This teaching, taking two of the big public sins and saying the problem isn't that acts, the problem is the mindset that leads to it. This is salt language. Salt is defensive, right? Salt keeps things from rotting from the inside out. Salt is something that stops it before it can take hold. So how do we live out salt? We pay attention to where things start. So that kind of gets everyone on the same page, right? It gets everyone to say like, oh man, I thought I was so good, but I've got anger in my heart. Oh, I've looked at that person lustfully. I've thought about that. I've fantasized about that. Well, Jesus is saying they're all on the same page. So if I'm tracking with this guy, I got my own problems. All right, so that's the defensive thing. But what about the offensive thing? What about light being the offensive weapon? We have to figure out what does it mean to be following Jesus, not just in a passive, defensive way, but what does it mean to follow Jesus moving forward, engaging those around us in an offensive way? And so Jesus goes about this with the most, maybe not, maybe that's, maybe that's extreme, one of the more, I think, misinterpreted teachings of Jesus. And he talks about what we are to do with our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, it'll be on the screen. Again, he's going to hearken back to law language, Old Testament law language. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not, turn away, do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've, said it was, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We look at that in the Old Testament, we say, man, that was so barbaric. That was so bloody. But in fact, it was a... It was kind of a revelation in terms of law codes at the time because it stopped the, the cycle of retribution, right? 
you punch me, I stab you, well, then you're going to come after my family, and then you're going to come after my whole city and town, and then nations are at war, right? It builds, it builds, it builds, escalates, and escalates. This is kind of a way to stop that. And well, Jesus is saying, that's all well and good, but let's take that even further. Do not resist an evil person. Does that mean that we, as followers of Jesus, are called to just roll over and die? That we're just supposed to allow people to do what they want with us? I think you could make that argument, but I'm not going to. I'm going to make a different argument. I think what's going on here is that Jesus is speaking to a creative resistance. Because Jesus, as we have just seen, is more concerned with the the heart, the inner life, as opposed to the actions. He's more concerned at where things start than where things end up. So he is going to be speaking to what's going on within. And I think that the best way to describe this is creative resistance or, 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 or nonviolent resistance. A way to get people to realize their sin. A way to get people to realize the issues that they may have in their lives. So let's start at the end of this teaching and work backwards. He says this, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. What is that about? Well, Roman law had it said that the Romans were ingenious about how to fuel their empire and the backbone of their empire was their army and they recognized this by building the incredible road system that is still in existence today and it's in as many ways a credit to the spread of christianity because we were able to use those early missionaries were able to use that network of roads that was maintained and safely maintained to travel and spread the gospel but they also realized well we got to do things to to kind of keep the local populace down, but also utilize them. So there was this Roman code, there was this Roman law, that if you're marching, you're a soldier walking along, you can unload all your gear, all your pack, all your equipment, and have someone else carry it for you. And because the roads were well marked, these mile markers, it was well known, you could force someone, and they legally had to do it, to carry your gear for a mile. And Jesus says, well, that's something that's known. That's something that everyone knows that that happens. And he says, go with them two miles. Why would he say that? Because at that moment, when you reach that first mile, and the soldier turns to you and says, all right, thanks, go on your way. I got to find someone else to do this. And you say, no, I'm good. I'm going to do this a second mile. The power balance begins because now people walking by will say that guy's breaking his own codes and in honor society this is a major major issue this is causing this person to to kind of get upset become worried this roman soldier because he knows that he can be reported he can be fined he can be punished for breaking the roman codes it was a way of twisting that power imbalance and turning it on its head Jesus goes on, he'll say that if anyone wants to sue you, or this is actually going backwards, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. I've heard two kind of big interpretations of this, and I'll do the first that's rendered here, and I'll talk about the second here uh, after. But this idea that if someone wants your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So if someone wants your inner garment, go ahead and give them your outer garment as well. In that climate, in that society, you need to be protected from wind, sand, and sun. And so you needed clothing on top of you. You needed that clothing on top of you to protect you if you were caught out overnight because it gets very cold overnight in the desert. And think about it this way. If, if this conversation was being witnessed by other people, you would see someone making a demand and then someone else giving more. That would cause you, what is going on here? Or if you came at the end of the conversation, you would think to yourself, 
why is this guy being so unreasonable in his demands? And it shifts that power imbalance. It, it shames, it changes somebody through pointing out just how wrong they are through an action. Or, or think about this translation. The other translation I've heard is that is if someone wants your cloak, your outer garment, give them that and give them your shirt, your coat, the inner garment. And if you're giving someone your outer flowing garment, you're giving someone your inner flowing garment, in a, in a society, you know, propriety is important, all of a sudden you're half naked standing there. You've handed this stuff off. You're shaming the other person. What are the people walking by going to think about this person making this demand? You brought shame to this person by stripping them like this. And then maybe the most famous and I think most confused way of looking at this uh, love your enemies passage, passage by Jesus. He says, but if I tell you, do not resist any person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. All right, we're going to do some demonstration here. Heidi, will you come here for a second? Would you like to slap me? Would you enjoy that? No? no? That's, a, that's the right answer, no. But she, no one's going to slap each other, but, but Heidi, my wife's going to come up here. I want to demonstrate this a little bit because I can talk about it, and it's, it's, it's one thing, but showing is another thing. Now stay over there. I don't want outside of arm's length there. I don't want you to actually slap me. Okay, I don't know if I trust you. Okay, hold up your right hand, honey. Okay, good. Everybody give Heidi a round of applause. Good job, Heidi. Got a right hand. Now, in that society, let's pretend Heidi's a man, which is, you know, who would think that? She's too pretty, right? If you, she was a man, she would not slap in a forehanded fashion. She would slap in a backhanded fashion, okay? As a way of saying, you are beneath me, right? You are beneath me. This is a cultural thing. So if you're going to slap me with your right hand backhanded, which cheek, the right cheek or the left cheek, are you going to hit? Exactly, exactly, very good. So that backhanded slap is going to hit me on the right cheek. Makes sense, right? But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, turn to them your left cheek. You can't hit my right cheek. I'm giving you this. Can you backhand me that way? If you tried really hard? But, think, but catch the idiom here. Catch what Jesus is doing. To do this, you're going to have to slap me differently. You're going to have to go forehanded to get me on the left cheek. Who slaps... In that form, a woman, not to get misogynistic here, but that was the cultural uh, concept of the time. So for a man to slap with a forehand, man, that's lowering him and that's shaming that person that's attacking. All right, well, let's say this. You're left-handed, right? You are left-handed. In that society, you wouldn't have been. Because in that society, the left hand, it was a cultural faux pas to even bring it above your waist, Okay, it was, if you waved at someone, that would be an offensive thing with your left hand. Why? Because they didn't have toilet paper. And they had to designate a cleaning hand. Okay, do you want to talk more about that and explain what that means? Okay, she's going to pass on that. So you don't want to slap someone with your left hand, backhand or forehand, because that is an affront. So what are your options here? You can either escalate things, punch me, but that creates legal issues, or you can walk away. And so when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's saying something incredibly different. Thank you for your participation, Heidi. We'll talk, we'll, <laughs> very good. So this turn the other cheek isn't just take a beating. This turn the other cheek language isn't just roll over and die. It's this creative resistance. It's this way to not play their games, 
to not play their games, to not play the power dynamics, to not get caught up in that and find a way around it and change their behavior. Because what is Jesus really concerned about? He's not concerned about outward actions. He's not concerned about the end result. He's concerned about hearts. He's concerned about what comes that leads to those outward actions. And so we think about this. We think about the creative resistance. I, the first thing I thought about this week was in the 1950s and the 1960s, the civil rights movement, and it's, as it was really growing up in the American South and, and expanding and beyond the American South. It was everywhere, but there were lunch counters. You know, people would go in for a bite to eat for lunch, and, and they would be segregated. And African Americans, black people couldn't go and sit there legally. And so there would be these pictures, and this is what really amplified this creative resistance of black and white people sitting together at these lunch counters and mobs of people dumping food on them and yelling at them and getting physical with them. It was a creative way of pointing out injustice. It was a creative way of showing how flawed this system was. It was a creative way, without playing into their hands, without playing into their games, that this is wrong. Jesus is saying that when we turn the other cheek, we are not giving up. We are finding ways to be salt and light. Jesus cares about how we treat one another. And the main question about how we live cannot be answered just by following the rules of the law in a, in a black and white way, and this is it, and the conversation's over. And, but it doesn't mean that you just throw them all out either. Their law has incredible value and importance. It means that we see them as what they are, a means to getting us closer to God that is perfected in Jesus. The law shows us how much we come up short. The law shows us our need, our, we desire these rules, but we see it perfectly in Jesus. He tells us to be salt and light. It isn't about the symptoms of the disease. It's about the disease itself. It's not about murder, it's about anger. It isn't about adultery, it's about lust. It isn't about meeting violence with violence, it's about finding ways to see people changed. So we have to get creative. Our actions have to be well considered to point people back to Jesus, to a better way, to a way full of grace where we opt out of the way things have been done and do something new. Think about it this way. We don't fight enemies to defeat them. We love them creatively to change them. Now, don't think that that is just like hippy-dippy, woo-woo, like just all get along junk, right? This is active. This is bold. This is something where you're standing up, you're fighting, but you're not fighting their way their, and, their, and their methods. You are going somewhere else, somewhere better. You're getting creative because you are trying to change them. You're not just trying to defeat them. This is one of the radical things of Jesus. He's not calling us just to point out who's wrong. He's calling us to be part of the transformation that everyone should go through. Jesus cares about how we act. He cares about how we treat one another and the things within that lead to action because in his plan of salvation for everyone, he invites us to take part. And of course, we see this language not just as a philosophical idea we see it lived out on the cross we see where we see where jesus says essentially to Pilate, i'm not playing your game yeah if you want to call me the king of the jews fine we see where he he offers his body up freely the people around him were, were kind of amazed that, that what did this guy do 
In Luke's account of the gospel, the first person to make a proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God is one of the disciples. It's a Roman centurion sitting there at the foot of the cross. Jesus, the the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God on earth, is there at the cross, and two common criminals, two two just, just basic lawbreakers, people who have probably been in and out of the system for years, people who, who are just, just, they were so desperate, they were so, they, they just made horrible decisions. And one of them's throwing insults at Jesus, and he doesn't call this one out, but one of them sticks up for Jesus, and Jesus extends to that one eternal life. There on the cross, we see the creative ways that this is shown. We see the forgiveness and the love, but we see the courage and the boldness of it. And then we see the ability to to continue to go down that path of self-denial of serving others to the point of death and then of course we see the empty tomb and the promise of resurrection jesus dies on the cross rises rises again inviting us all to take part in this new pattern this new way to live jesus shows us how to do this and invites us in to be reborn We can't get bogged down arguing about the rules because I think we have a childlike understanding of them. We can't get bogged down with saying we got to throw all those rules out and we've got to just ignore all this like a petulant teenager. We've got to see the value and the way it's perfected in Jesus that shows us our flaws, shows us that we can never live up to this law, to this standard, and therefore we need Jesus. And so that gospel message, yes, it starts with you. It starts with the individual. It starts with the realization, I'm broken. It starts with the realization, I need Jesus in my life. And that is not a one-time decision. That is something we all come back to. And as we return to it over and over again for ourselves, we see that we have an opportunity, we have a challenge, we have a responsibility to take part in the work of redeeming and restoring everything with Jesus. And one of the ways this happens, one of the ways this happens is by getting really, really creative by finding ways to help people change, to help people step, take a step and engage. And it doesn't happen by just playing their games, by just feeding into hate, to feeding into language that divides and cuts down. It doesn't happen by accident, but it doesn't happen so often the way we think it will. Let's pray. Father, Show us how to be creative. Show us how to, how to love in bold ways. Show us how, show us how we, we are supposed to do this. And Father, I just pray that you would, you would continue to guide and to lead us forward. To your son's name, amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the band up, and they're going to lead us in another song. And it's an important opportunity for us to, to realize something here. I think that I think that so often we can, we can hear a message, we can read the scripture, or maybe this is just me, right? We read something and we talk about something, we say, I get it, intellectually. But Jesus is concerned about the heart. Jesus is concerned about the root of the thing.
Jesus is concerned about what's driving us. And one of the ways that I have found in my <laughs> inarticulate, boorish way that, that music and art can, can hold up a mirror in a powerful way. And so I would encourage us that, that, that in however we're worshiping, whether we're at home or in this room or what that looks like, to not miss the value and the importance of this. Because when we worship, we are responding, we are connecting with God. If you're willing, if you're able as the band leads, would you stand?